Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. We have a guest on the show today, Ben Franta. Ben is a scientist, science historian, science writer and activist. He studied for a PhD at Harvard working on solar cells. While he was at Harvard, he became involved in the movement to persuade that university to divest from fossil fuels. After finishing his first PhD, he moved to Stanford to take up a PhD in the history of science, where he now studies the history of climate politics and the influence of fossil fuel companies on that politics. His recent article in The Guardian, published on New Year's Day, explained how Edward Teller, the atomic physicist, knew about global warming in 1959 and even warned the fossil fuel industry 30 years before it hit the mainstream. The second half of our discussion, which you're about to hear, is mostly about climate change activism. What can we do to most effectively deal with climate change? One of the issues that comes into the politics, and obviously you study the history of the politics of climate change now, if you're in a bipartisan system, like you're the Democrats, you only have to be slightly better on climate change than the opposition for people to vote for you if they care about it, if that makes sense. There's not too much reason to actually enact policies that would keep us below 2C of warming, say, like, for example, ending all the subsidies for fossil fuel exploration, unless the public really holds your feet to the fire. But in a two-party system, you can always say, well, it's an inadequate climate policy or none at all, your pick if that makes sense. Part of the way that our political system is structured is that it's difficult sometimes to get the scale of action that we need because of how divided it is. So on that topic, this is perhaps even more controversial than Trump. There are people out there, uh, Naomi Klein is a good example, who say that our current global political and economic system is basically incapable of dealing with climate change. From a political perspective, it's probably always going to be more favourable to get a nice tax cut to your voters to get re-elected compared to climate change mitigation. From a global perspective, we need everyone to cooperate and work together in reducing emissions. There's an incentive to free ride off what others do. There's a social justice issue, an issue of inequality. Rich countries in Europe, North America, etc. have gained a lot of wealth and power through burning fossil fuels, emitting carbon dioxide, exploiting poor countries, and historically they have the most responsibility for the problem. Poor countries, which often have abundant natural resources, would like to be able to get rich in the same way by burning those fossil fuels and exporting them. From an economic perspective, it's an incredibly complex challenge. So the economists talk about negative externality, which is when a uh, a trade between two parties negatively impacts a third party. Dealing with these is incredibly difficult and it's why you need regulation. For example, if I want to buy cheap clothes from you and you use slave labour to make them, that trade has a negative externality. It doesn't impact me or you directly, but of course you need laws against this kind of thing for fairness. In this global sense, we're talking about climate change as a huge, uncosted, perhaps impossible to measure, negative externality that isn't included in the natural system, but the industries that cause it are worth trillions of dollars. A totally free market economy, which everyone says they love, would never take into account any negative externality like that. But it immensely impacts and disproportionately hits poorer countries due to where they are and their inability to adapt to climate impacts. Trump and these people who you've talked about throughout history would say that now fossil fuels are so interwoven into our society that it's just too expensive to do anything about. Do you think we can have economic growth and a stable climate at the same time? How radical is the change that we need? And what would you say to those people who think we need to completely and radically change the systems that govern us, and our way of life even, to deal with the problem? <clears throat> yeah, so I sort of actually... I. I come down on both sides a little bit myself because, I mean, I think as you pointed out, our, the sort of failure to deal with climate change, I think, will be seen as a huge uh, black mark on on our uh, economic and political system that we have today. I think future people will look back and say, how could they fail so spectacularly to deal with this problem when they had knowledge of it for many decades? Um, and, you know, <laughs> we might they might see 
our system in the same sort of backwards way that we look at, you know, like feudalism or something like that. (laughs) And and so in in a sense, yeah, I think that we, we, you know, we do need to, we might, well, I don't know if we do need to or not, we'll see, but, but it really makes one think about changing um, our economic priorities and and the way our political system is set up and everything in a, in a more fundamental way. Now, that being said, uh, there, there's also a, a strategy that's often used to, to delay action on a problem, and that is to say, to, to fix this problem, we have to change everything else about society. And, um, you know, for example, the um, the tobacco industry, uh, when it was facing, you know, threat of regulation and everything like that, said, well, you know, this, you know, if you regulate if you, cigarettes, you tax cigarettes, then this is going to really change uh, the social contract, you know, writ large. You know, this is going to change the very fundamental essence of our society and we have to change everything. It gets really complicated. And that was basically a strategic ploy to try to make the problem seem bigger than it actually is or more complicated to solve than it actually is. And so I think we have to also be careful of that. So the, the climate change issue is often complexified to the point where people are paralyzed, where, you know, they think this problem is so big that, you know, it's impossible to solve. There's nothing we can do about it. But in reality, and, and uh, when the climate issue sort of got on the radar of scientists and government industry back in the 19, late 1950s and in the 1960s, the solution was extremely obvious it was look this is a side effect of burning fossil fuels and it's and it's pretty straightforward and if we want to solve the problem we have to replace fossil fuels now i know that there's there are other sources of say methane and things like that but by and large the primary cause of global warming is simply our use of fossil fuels and so to solve it they have to be replaced ultimately and and so i think that's a very simple way of looking at it and it's and it's essentially correct. And I think that's a much more uh, mobilizing uh, framework as well, because it, it leads one to to uh, what one can do to solve the problem. And so basically any anything that one can do, uh, any action one can take, any policy one can pass that hastens the replacement of fossil fuels by other sources of energy is a way of dealing with the problem. It's it's a step in the right direction. And and in that sense, that completely dismantles this paralyzing view of, oh my God, the the game theory of climate change is so impossible that, you know, there's no way we can ever ever do anything about it. And, you know, how are we going to deal with negative externalities? And how are we going to deal with the need to get every country to agree to the same policy? But the fact is you don't. You just you just sort of make progress wherever you can. And so I think we're actually seeing that, you know, for many for many years there was this oh, every country in the world have the same cap and trade policy. Well that didn't really work. <laughs> um, you know, it just didn't work. It turned out not to work. And and so now their policies, you know, city level, state level, sometimes national level, um, sometimes international level. And the more you get of that, then the faster fossil fuels get replaced and the faster you solve the problem. I think that's a very good perspective to take on these things. And certainly I hadn't looked at it that way, actually. Uh, these people who say we need to radically change our way of life, they might be well-intentioned, but at the same time, you can induce a sort of paralysis and hopelessness if you emphasise how big the problem is. I think as well as this, the issue is, you know, the most popular climate change group on Facebook has the tagline, is it real or is it a global communist conspiracy to take over the world? As if those are the two options, you know? 
But maybe some of the people who are emphasising radical change get amplified when they rail against capitalism and consumerism. It kind of adds to that group of people you said who who oppose climate change action on ideological grounds. In other words, people who don't emphasise the problem, who downplay it or even deny it outright because they don't like some of the solutions that are being proposed to it. It's not to do with the science, but because they have this illusion that people want to use this to impose on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is a very interesting relationship there between people who do want to change the way that that uh, that our sort of capitalist economy works and then and then other interests who might use that, as you say, this uh, this sort of massive frame um, where you have to change everything in order to induce paralysis. I, you know, that's a really interesting relationship. And I I mean, I don't think it's like uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to say that like the far left is like aiding and abetting, you know, climate change obstruction or something like that. I, that would be a premature conclusion. I think it is interesting to, to think about how do we frame this in a way or approach it, think about it in a way that we can actually solve. Because ultimately, you know, what people will care about 200 years from now or 100 years from now or 50 is did we solve the problem or did we fail to solve the problem? So I think we need to think about it in very pragmatic ways, in ways that we can actually accomplish and be effective in. So, yes, absolutely. There are links between all these problems because climate change is a problem of global injustice, uh, a measure of economic and environmental inequality. Developed countries profit at the expense of developing countries, and you want to redress that balance if you possibly can. But talking about that changes the dimensions of the politics of the situation, and it takes away from the simple message of this thing we're burning has nasty side effects, let's stop doing it. This is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think, yeah. I just want to point out too that I think you know that the social justice frame I think is 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 crucial. I think it's necessary. Uh, I think ultimately the basic movement for action, because this is a long term problem, often comes from people's sense of of ethics, of meaning, what's the right way to live, and of course they put that into politics and they put that into the way that they direct their influence in their life. Um, so those those two things couple together. But I think that social justice frame is actually very crucial because that's I see it as the fundamental. Um, it, it's that's sort of the the tide that keeps rising. That's that's the fundamental source of the political pressure that eventually gets translated into policy. Without that, there's really no then there's just raw economic incentive. And I think we've seen that the economic power of the incumbents is pretty strong and they can delay policy for a very long time. So you need that grassroots social movement power to to overcome that. I think it's very important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that won't be motivated by, as you say, people who say, you know, in the long run, we stand to gain more money if we mitigate now versus trying to adapt later. That's an emotionless argument in a lot of ways. I'm not sure it convinces people. It'd be like saying to people, you know, you have to save for your grandkids. People don't always do that. But a really powerful force in this is people's sense of injustice and unfairness, as you say. So when you were at Harvard, you became involved in this passionate effort to persuade the university to divest from fossil fuel companies. And of course, you noted in several articles that everyone should go read, that it's very hypocritical for these learned institutions to, to pay lip service to fighting climate change and saying everyone should do more, while continuing to profit off the exploration of coal, oil and gas. Especially as, when, as we talk about the Paris Agreement now, 
Everyone says that to meet these targets, you basically have to stop exploring and developing new fossil fuel reserves. In fact, a lot of what's been found already has to stay in the ground to meet those targets. And soon we'll need to start retiring existing plants, let alone not building any more. So if you take that seriously, then exploring for new stuff is just beyond the pale. So could you just talk about just the divestment movement in general, because it seems to be taking off recently, and and with the city of New York and the Norwegian Wealth Fund and many others starting to divest. That's right. So yeah, the divestment movement, uh, which really picked up in in the fall of 2012, I believe. I mean, there were some divestment sort of uh, 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 small parts of the movement, some campaigns before then. Things really exploded nationally about fossil fuel divestment in 2012. And since then, it's grown grown quite rapidly. I think it's become quite successful. Um but yeah, I became involved with that movement uh, when I was at Harvard, and um, <laughs> when I was when I was not in the lab, I, I was working on scheming, you know, making activist plans and so forth. And um, and I was attracted to it for a number of different reasons. And it, and I think the divestment movement is sort of it means a lot of different things. Uh, and so you know, one of the reasons I was attracted to it is okay, well, you know, I spend all my time hanging around with other scientists talking about climate change, but we're not, we're not doing anything. We're not doing anything about it. And we're just sitting around talking about it. And, and so I, I wanted to actually do something about it. I wanted to make, I wanted to make a tangible impact um, in some way, even if it was a small impact, I wanted it to be tangible. Um, and I saw the divestment movement could do that. I was also attracted to it because of its structure. So it's, you can think about the game theory of development um, and sort of what it represents as a movement. So most climate change discussion before then was sort of in a technocratic realm, you know, sort of like, oh, if you're an environmental economist, you can talk about climate change. If you're an atmospheric physicist, you can talk about climate change. But other than that, you know, you shouldn't talk about climate change because you don't know what you're talking about. That was sort of that's sort of the. The feeling, and, and unfortunately, that's still often uh, the sentiment among a lot of scientists. And the problem that I had with that was, you know, look, you can bring together all the scientists in the world who care about climate change, but it's just, it's not enough. It's not enough political pressure to actually uh, push through policy, to actually move society to do something. It has to be bigger. It has to be broader than that. And the way that you do that, I think, is is through social movements that talk about issues of justice, that ultimately talk about issues of morality. Um, that is what everybody has sort of in common in their humanity is a sense of, hum of morality, a sense of justice and injustice. And nobody has a monopoly on that. And, and that's why broad based social movements are all, you know, generally they're based on their moral based movements. They're movements that are talking about what's right, what's wrong, what's okay in society, what's not okay. Um, and so when I saw divestment, I was like, okay, this is really interesting because here's a climate change movement that is scalable, that essentially anybody can participate in, that is, it, it's asking for something very real. It's asking for people to literally stop investing in, in a sector, but it's a moral-based movement. And so I, I was really, really intrigued by that, that structure. And then, of course, you know, there's a scientific reason to support development, too. And that's that, as far as I know, every major research study that looks at investment implications of climate goals, say a two-degree goal, they all come to the same conclusion, that, and that's that we have to stop investing in, in more fossil fuel extraction and building more fossil fuel infrastructure 
because those investments are long lived and the infrastructure is long lived. And so if we want to move away from fossil fuels in the time frame that we've agreed to do, then it's just a simple, almost a, you know, sort of a mathematical necessity that we have to draw down investment. And, but people weren't really doing it. So, so, you know, so for those different reasons, you know, sort of like a, a technical reason and pragmatic reason and, and all of that, I was very attracted to this fossil fuel divestment movement. Um, and then, of course, it, being involved in a movement like that is an education by itself because you learn by doing, you learn how social movements work, you learn what doesn't work, you learn to listen to other people who think differently than you, uh, and all of that. That's those are all really important. And I encourage, I basically encourage everybody <laughs> to to be involved with with social movements for that reason, because that's when you really start to learn how politics works, how power works. Because uh, you don't know how power works until so you try to challenge it. Usually, <laughs> so and that's when you learn. So, so I think it's a very good thing to do. And you know, recently it's uh, it picked up. Again, you know, I mean, it kind of goes through waves, uh, phases. So when we first started it, or, or when a lot of us first got involved in 2012, within about a year, it really exploded across the U.S. and some other countries um, in terms of the number of campaigns. There were hundreds of campaigns by the end, I think, of the first year. And, you know, and then it continued to grow. And then, you know, sometimes there are these quiet periods where where you run up against a wall and like, oh, okay, I don't know what to do now. And that's when you have to go back and strategize and figure out what to do. And, um, but recently we've seen, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of become common sense now. Like, well, you know, if we care about climate change, then why, why do we keep investing in, in, uh, in this sector? So, so now, uh, groups are doing it. And I think, you know, the current tally is that something like um, asset pools totaling around $6 trillion now uh, have have committed to divest from some sector, some aspect of the fossil fuel industry, whether it's just coal, whether it's coal and oil sands, or whether it's the whole, uh, all fossil fuel um, producers. And that's obviously, we can see that's having a much larger effect than just saying we need to reduce emissions over and over again, because you're giving people a concrete set of actions, you know, steps they can take that might be easier than cutting their emissions by the required amounts by, you know, no longer driving, not having children, etc. That's the best thing on the list of these recommendations to reduce your carbon footprint. In the US, for example, even if you never drive again, you still only reduce your footprint by a fifth of what's needed to keep to Paris if the world still uses fossil fuels in the way it does. We have to decarbonise the energy sector, and having one fewer child is hardly an option if you have kids. Nor is it a particularly obvious choice. I mean, burning coal causes climate damages, so I should have fewer children. As if there's no way to live except using coal, as if my children have to burn coal. You know, it doesn't make sense. As it related to Harvard in particular, these institutions have big endowments, money that they invest in a lot of places, and that's part of how they fund their activity. So what did you do to try and get Harvard to divest from fossil fuels? Yeah, so we, we did just about anything you could imagine. Let's see, you know, I was involved with the campaign for, let's see, you know, probably, I guess, four years. And, um, you know, oh, man, we kind of went up the ladder. So first we went through proper channels. You know, we set up, we had petitions. We, we wrote things to, you know, try to convince the community. We, we had a referendum. That was sort of the big breakthrough where there was a student referendum on the issue of divestment, and a very large majority voted yes uh, for the referendum, uh, something like 70%. And so that was our first indication that, you know, 
the 10 of us sitting in that room weren't just crazy <laughs> or or at least, you know, our, our feeling was shared by a large portion of the campus uh, that, that we should do this. And and so that was very encouraging. I think that even made national news because, you know, here we are at Harvard and Harvard's sort of the symbol of the establishment. And there's and the students are saying, you know, we we want to divest from fossil fuels. And so that was a big deal. Uh, you know, then. After a while, we ran into real opposition from the administration, um, and their their stance was basically, you know, no way, it's not, there's no way we're doing this. You know, they would make arguments too, like, you know, this will destroy the endowment. You know, there's there's no way we can do this without, you know, and sort of preserve Harvard. And you know, these are really, you know, false uh, sort of uh, arguments. Um, there's really no evidence. Well, there's no no analytic evidence that that's actually the case. At least no good analytic evidence. And of course, there's the real counterfactual case that a lot of institutions, both bigger and smaller than Harvard, have divested and they are doing fine. So so anyway, you know, so then we run into that. Then it be, then it becomes a matter of uh power versus power. Then you know, then it's less a matter of logical persuasion is you kind of run into a wall there sometimes and then it's like how do you convince them how do you persuade them you know through whatever means you have so that's when we um you know we spent a lot of time mobilizing the faculty the the student body the alumni to show their support um you know we've tried all sorts of different tactics i think activist tactics are really interesting it's like it's uh it's very creative it's like live theater it's, it's sort of like live improv like you just really never know what's going to happen <laughs> you know when you're when you're out there you know at a protest well you want to make a spectacle in a way exactly you want to move people in a way that they will be changed when they leave that place, you know. And so, you know, we did things like, uh, you know, we did a fast. So one time, you know, I didn't eat anything for three days, <laughs> which was interesting. And, um, you know, we did a, of course, we did civil disobedience. We, uh, some of us were arrested, um, at one point, uh, you know, various things. And I think one of the mo most powerful lessons we learned is that, okay, sometimes you have to be confrontational, uh, to get, to get the goods. You have to, you have to take direct action to get the goods, but also a huge amount of power in self-sacrifice. And I think one of the most powerful lessons that I learned was that, is that the things we did that were the most moving to other people that really motivated them to act, to, transform their concern into real action was when when we ourselves were willing to do something that was that was a big sacrifice for us you know i mean so for example uh there was an action we took where a number of us um simply sat down in the office of the um the harvard management company and you know we just said well we're gonna sit here you know until either you'll talk to us or you're gonna you'll arrest us and Ultimately, they arrested us, you know, and we had to go to jail and we had to, you know, we now have criminal records and all that. You know, it's not nearly as bad as what most people deal with in the legal system, but, you know, it's, it's not something one would want to bring on themselves. No, it's a personal sacrifice. Yeah, but, but those personal sacrifices where you're just saying, look, I'm just doing this because this is the right thing to do. You, you know, you do what you'll do, but this is what I'm doing. Those are what really move people uh, to to act themselves. Because then they look at themselves and they say, well, I care about this too. Why, why am I not acting? And it's that local social pressure rather than an abstract concept of, oh, if I don't do this, there'll be a typhoon in a far off place in 20 years. If you have a local social pressure on you, it inspires you to make more of a difference. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think movements are very important. You know, one of my friends, Jeffrey uh, Supran, um, from he's at Harvard now, and uh, he's he's done a lot of really great work recently on analyzing ExxonMobil's uh, climate communication with Naomi Oreskes at Harvard. And, um, you know, he he wrote a great, great piece, which maybe you can send out to your listeners. But it's, you know, what can I do about climate change? You know, because this is a really common question. You know, what do I do? It's such a big issue. And and he wrote a great piece, and his, his recommendations were the most important thing you can do is to get involved with some sort of movement, some sort of social movement, some sort of group, because historically uh, he found that it only takes about three or four percent of the population to be involved in a concerted social movement effort in order to change laws, to change policies. It actually doesn't require a huge fraction of the population just a, a small fraction of dedicated people who are pushing in the same direction. And so that's very powerful. Now, of course, there's many kinds of social movements. There are very radical social movements. You know, if you want to like, you know, uh, you know, chain yourself to a pipeline or something like that, movements who do that. You know, if you want to get together with scientists, say, and, and, you know, work on projects, uh, analyzing data that you wouldn't normally analyze in the lab and communicate that data to the public through op-eds and things like that. You know, there are people who do that too, right? And they're all, they're all part, they're all, uh, subparts of different social movements. So, so I think that's, that's probably the number one most important thing that people can do. Um, of course, there are there are other things that people can do too, and one of them is, of course, what what you're doing right now, and one and that's ending this sort of climate silence. You know, there's a sense that everyone is aware, or a lot of people are aware of climate change, but people actually hardly ever talk about it. Mm -hmm. It's just this ticking, ebbing thing in the background, and that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to communicate because people don't always feel the immediacy and the urgency to act. Even after this recent storm season in the U.S., which was unprecedented, people were willing to say it had been exactly exacerbated by climate change. People did the attribution studies to show that it had been worsened by climate change. But it drops off the radar so quickly after that. Keeping it in the forefront of people's minds is difficult. That's right. So it's extremely important to talk about and also to talk about, you know, what what you're doing about it, you know, how you think about it, how you feel about it, what you're doing about it. You know, de-abstract it, make it specific, make it actionable. And then and then of course, you know, there are some things we can do to cut our carbon footprint, uh, you know, in sort of big chunks, you know, things like eating less, less beef, like driving less uh, and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I mean, I think those are probably the the weakest action that one can take because, I mean, even if one is a homeless person, one still has a carbon footprint that is unsustainably high. So there, it really doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't matter how much you try to cut your carbon footprint as long as fossil fuels are at the base of the energy infrastructure then you can't solve the problem. And so I think that's why it's very important to to keep the focus uh, on the producers. Of course, as consumers, yeah, we have responsibilities and we should we should do the best we can. But it's very important to keep the focus on the producers because that's where the problem will actually get solved. If you cut your own personal carbon footprint, and of course people shouldn't be wasteful, but it, it doesn't change the underlying electricity generation mix and it doesn't stop people from burning roughly the same amount of fossil fuels. And in the long run, only by changing the energy that we use are we ever going to see real change happen. Pressuring the government to change its policies and change that electricity mix and moving to using electric cars instead of using fossil fuel cars. So I was going to ask you, as an activist, what do you think people should do to address climate change? But you've pretty much covered that, I think. 
So I'll just finish off by saying, you're studying at Stanford for a PhD in the history of science. Following on from your work on photovoltaics, this is going to be a look at the history of climate policy. And I just wanted to ask, how is the work going there? Not that dreaded, how's the thesis question that all grad students hate, but what direction are you looking at and the things you're discovering and looking into? Yes, yeah, so you're asking the question that every grad student fears, which is, how's your research going? <laughs> Believe me, I'm a first year grad student. I know just as much as you do that it's such a difficult question. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's been really interesting. So essentially, you know, what I'm working on is, uh, is as far as I know, it would be sort of the first comprehensive history of climate politics, mostly in the United States. But but the uh, there's certain aspects of the history that most people are not aware of, or many people are not. And one is this very early awareness of global warming by uh, the fossil fuel industry, by government scientists working on a problem uh, as early as the 1950s. So recently, for example, I um, was working in the archives looking for unknown documents, things that people hadn't noticed for a while, and uh, and found this transcript of a conference back in 1959. This was, this was like the 100th birthday party of the American oil industry. Um, because the American oil industry kind of took off uh, in, in around 1859 um, in Pennsylvania. And so in 1959, they're having this big conference at Columbia University in New York, and the heads of the oil industry were invited, a lot of government officials were invited, economists, scientists, and so on, about 300 people. And they had four keynote talks, or five uh, five keynote talks, a handful, and uh, one of them was the physicist Edward Teller. He's you know sort of known as the father of the hydrogen. Yeah, and um, and so in his speech, he talked a lot about how you know he thought nuclear was the way to go, and actually he had some ideas about uh, stimulating oil production using nuclear explosions and, you know, kind of doing civil engineering with nuclear explosions and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, interesting to look back now. And so, um, but anyway, in his speech, he gave a very direct warning about global warming. He goes, look, there's another reason that we need to get off of fossil fuels, and that is that, that CO2 is accumulating in the atmosphere due to basic, simple physics. That's going to cause a global warming because we know CO2 is a greenhouse gas. And so, you know, uh, ice caps can melt, sea level can rise. It's going to uh, cause huge flooding problems in major cities around the world. It's going to be a big problem. You know, and this is back in 1959. And I think you know, that sometimes history reveals more than just the simple fact. And, and I think what that reveals it illustrates is that is that the basic scientific understanding of the greenhouse effect and global warming was understood that was understood very quickly that was apprehended very immediately because the idea of a greenhouse effect was already known was already understood uh the the fact that co2 is a greenhouse gas that was already understood and the fact that fossil fuels emitted co2 that was already understood the the missing key the question that people had was well is co2 accumulating in the atmosphere you know is that is it actually building up and exactly and and those measurements were first done in the 1950s and they found oh you know, it is building up. And so the immediate inference is, wow, well, fossil fuels are going to cause global warming. And this could be a huge problem. And so, you know, it wasn't a very complex. They didn't have this sort of like, oh, this is super complex, this this frame that we use today. They're like, this is pretty simple. This is pretty straightforward. And so 
I think that's a very interesting aspect of the history. Um, and then for the next 30 years, basically until around 1990, the petroleum industry continued to study climate change uh, quietly, uh, sort of privately on its own. Uh, they would uh, commission scientists to write reports about the state of climate science. They had internal committees to monitor the state of climate science, and we have some of their memos, uh, their records from their meetings. So we know that they were very aware of the climate problem uh, for many decades, uh, starting around 1960 or so. And then, of course, you know, in the 90s, uh, when the Clinton administration tried to act on climate and, you know, there was the Kyoto Protocol and everything, there was this huge campaign of denial, uh, just outright science denial. You know, you'd have spokespeople of the petroleum industry writing in national newspapers saying IPCC has not found that humans are responsible for climate change. After 30 years of researching climate science. Okay, finding. So, yeah. So, so there was this outright you know, lying and outright denial strategy that was used, which completely contradicted all of the science that they had been informed of for decades before. Um, and now around the early 2000s, the industry moved away from this sort of obvious denialism. I mean, nowadays it's, it's pretty hard to find, you know, uh, an oil company that will say, oh, well, climate change doesn't exist. I mean, that, that's not really the strategy used now. Now it's more of a strategy of, of acknowledge the problem and stop any any action to address it. So obstruct any policy that comes forth. And that's that's basically been the strategy since the Bush era, uh, the George W. Bush era in the early 2000s. So that's sort of where we are. And so, you know, putting that history together has been very interesting. And and then there's been this new development in climate politics of lawsuits of climate lawsuits and yes it's so interesting to see where that's going people suing for climate damages you see lots of stories about it i don't know how feasible it will be to actually win the case but certainly as a means of getting like legal precedence and talking about responsibility and uh, getting it into the public attention and applying pressure directly on fossil fuel companies well how do you see it i see it as one of the most exciting developments in a long time i think that i think that this will be key i think that uh I think the fossil fuel companies are very afraid of this strategy um, because, I mean, this was part of the strategy that ultimately really hurt the tobacco industry was was a litigation against that industry, which which hinged often on that industry's early awareness of the harms of tobacco and their campaigns to confuse people and deny the harms of tobacco as well. So there's some very strong analogies between the history of the tobacco industry and the history of various parts of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, we have a lot of evidence from the oil industry in particular. And so I think they're very afraid of that. And we'll see where the lawsuits go. I mean, I think the, law, the lawsuits are right on the money because they're focusing on the producers. Uh, these are, these are the, the companies who knew about the the harms of their product, and yet they continue to sell them. They continue, they tried to block any effort to address that, and they lied to the public about the reality of those harms. Um, and so my sense is they're going to be liable eventually, and we'll see. I mean, uh, my, my understanding is that in the case of tobacco, it took many years um, for lawsuits to finally break through and succeed and find a winning strategy. And yeah, exactly. And and we might see the same thing here. It might take a long time, many years to kind of get this to work. But I think it 
it will ultimately work, I think. I mean, that's just a, a guess or a prediction. And I think it's going to have a big political impact, too, in the meantime, because uh, these courts are going to be investigating all sorts of evidence on uh, on the actions of, of uh, these companies. And a lot of that's in the history, but it's been sort of buried. People aren't aware of it. People deny it. But it's kind of hard to deny things in court, or at least it's harder to. The courts are going to be looking. Yeah, these people have good lawyers. Yeah, people know about that. The courts are going to be subpoenaing these companies and getting internal documents and seeing what they knew. So I see this as a huge, huge breakthrough, and I'm I'm very excited to see where it will go. In terms of the phrasing, you're right to say that it's a really good framing the responsibility, the criminal responsibility, in terms of misleading the public. Because on the other side, fossil fuel companies would probably say, you can't hold us responsible, everyone benefits from burning fossil fuels. We didn't drive the cars or consume all the electricity. Once you spread around the responsibility, you're distracting from the root cause of the problem. But then we can say, well sure, we all use fossil fuel energy, but you misled the public. You lied and stonewalled and manipulated the political process. You funded deniers, so there's a lot of culpability there. Yeah, exactly. That'll that'll probably be one of their main arguments, is that everybody is responsible, and therefore no one is responsible. Um, and, you know, the cigarette industry used the same strategy. They said, oh, you know, it's the consumer's fault. But, of course, that, that avoids the fact that the industry was lying to the consumer, Right. In the case of tobacco, there wasn't a lot of choice because of the power of addiction, which the industry is well aware of. And in the case of of fossil fuels, there's also not a huge amount of consumer choice because it's part of the energy infrastructure. So there's, there's a lot. I mean, there's some things consumers can do, but but not a huge amount of choice there. And and, you know, regular, you know. Uh, Sally or Joe Schmo on the street, they're not spending millions of dollars to block policies in Congress, <laughs> right? I mean, a, there's a huge difference between, uh, you know, what regular people are doing to obstruct solutions and what these companies have done to obstruct solutions. So I think I think they'll use that argument, but I think ultimately it will fail. An extra weapon in this fight besides social action, which is also good to do. Well, I know at some point you'll probably have a book out with the research that you're doing, and I'd love to have you back on the show then if you're available to promote it. But if people want to read what you've done lately, you had a great article in New Year uh, in The Guardian about Edward Teller's warning to the fossil fuel industry that we'll put in the show notes. Yeah, so I think, you know, maybe the most important thing is uh, is this sort of short article about, you know, what can I do about climate change? I think, you know, that's, I didn't write that, but I think it's it's probably more important than anything that I've written. <laughs> so I think that would be great. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think the story, most people aren't aware of the early, the early awareness of climate change. Uh, and so, you know, we can send out the, uh, the recent discovery about Edward Teller. I mean, that's a very, that's a very fun and interesting story. And it, it reveals a lot about just how long this history goes back. Well, all it remains for me to say is that it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming to speak to us. And I hope the listeners have enjoyed hearing our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you. Thanks very much. This was a, a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you enjoyed what our guest had to say, you can find his work via his LinkedIn, Benjamin Franta, in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Franta. The article that he referred to which deals with the case for climate activism, was written by Jeffrey Supran and Ploy Achukul-Wissit. It's on Mashable, and it's called What Can You Do to Fight Climate Change? That link will also be in the show notes. It's certainly a different perspective for me, but of course they are right to point out that the real issue is to get off fossil fuels. Making energy efficiency savings in your own life will help. 
But to get from where we are to the Paris Climate Accord goal of 2 degrees Celsius of warming, the average American would need to cut their carbon emissions from 16 tonnes down to 2. Something like ceasing to drive altogether only cuts your emissions down by 3 tonnes. And as they point out, just by living in a carbon-intensive society, just by benefiting from its infrastructure, your footprint is still way over the limit. So the only way we can fix this long term is by pressuring governments and companies to switch to renewable energy solutions. Luckily, those solutions become cheaper every day. Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod and go to our website at physicspodcast.com where you'll find a donate link that will help you support the show if you're so inclined. And you can also tell us any questions you have, any people you'd like to hear from, any subjects you'd like us to cover, all that kind of thing. You can contact us on the website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time, then.